Awesome. With with that same spirit of prayer of, of worship and, and adoration towards God, let's let's go to him in prayer before we open the scriptures here. Heavenly Father, may we not just get into the scriptures today, but may the scriptures get into us. May we not simply be challenged, but may we be changed as we open your living word. Breathe life into our church family. Breathe life into us as individuals. Give us a clear sense of your calling on our lives. God, we humble ourselves before you. Mold us, shape us. We want to make, make your name great. We want to make light of your glory. We want to give you the attention and the affection that you deserve, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If we haven't met yet, my name is Nick Mastrud, one of the pastors around here, and we've been in a several week, actually a seven week series in the book of Revelation, and I'm just going to jump right in. This is the final teaching of this series. Um, John has this vision, and he writes these seven letters to the church in order that they may stand strong in tough times, in times of persecution. They were written to certain churches in history, but the letters are really written to the church as a whole. Um, and some of uh, these churches clearly make Jesus pretty angry, <laughs> pretty frustrated. Some of them uh, are j- just frustrating. Some of them uh, of the churches actually have some encouraging attributes. But what we're looking at today is probably one of the most convicting passages in all of Scripture. Thank you, Dave, for letting me preach on this one. Um, we are looking at a church that Jesus is disgusted in, Um, a church that nauseates him. The point of the letter we're looking at today, I want to make clear up front, is not to guilt or to shame, but to get the church, you and I, to wake up, to instill in, in his church, into our church, this sense of urgency that we aren't playing church games here. He warns them, and in turn, he warns us that tough times are coming and a flimsy faith just won't do. A flimsy faith just will not do. I think if any of the seven letters represented the American church most, it would be this church. The struggle of Laodicea is our struggle. Um, John Stott put it this way, Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th and 21st century church than this one. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. My prayer is that the text today would serve as a wake-up call, and it would be an encouragement. Pursue Jesus with everything you have. He is worth it. So with that, open with me to Revelation 3. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. Here's what it says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. These are Jesus's words. I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. 
So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. On a surface level, this text has all sorts of implications and meanings, but when we know the cultural moment of what's going on in Laodicea at this time and in times past, it just opens up an insane amount of meaning that I want to shed light on um, to begin with. So um, we've been walking through all these churches. There's kind of a map we've been using. We're at this bottom one on the right there, Laodicea. Um, cities in the ancient world were always in competition. They were, they were wanting to be the first and the best in anything that they did. Like you wanted the emperor's temple in your city. You wanted the best athletes. You wanted the biggest arena, the best location, the best economy. You just wanted to be popular. It's very different from it is today. And Laodicea was obsessed with being recognized. They, they wanted to be known for their success and their riches. This is really interesting. In, in 26 AD, the city put in a request for the temple to be built for the emperor Tiberius and it got turned down. They, they weren't big enough, they weren't rich enough, they weren't significant enough, and they go, not on our watch. So for the next 30 years, they put their hand to the plow, and they go, we're going to be the biggest and the best. We're going to show Rome, we're going to show them um, who, who's really big and bad. We're just going to... So the city went wild in pursuit of success, and the crazy part is it worked. They, they were in the perfect location for trade and commerce. They were producing this luxurious and rare black wool that everyone wanted to get everyone wanted to get their hands on and they started producing this phrygian eye ointment or this salve that was known for healing people all over the world they went big time they were so wealthy that by the end of 60 AD so 34 years after they put in this request a massive earthquake hit in the area destroyed the city and rome comes in and they say hey we want to help you rebuild the city and you know what they did they refused we don't need your help. We don't want your help. They refused help from the government. They, they have grown so self-sufficient, so self-reliant that they don't want free help. As if to say, who's significant now? We built this city on rock and roll, baby. Like, we've got the money. We've got the medical support. We've got this swaggy wool. We are in need of nothing. The problem with the church in Laodicea was this exact same mentality. It started seeping in its self-sufficiency, its self-made, self-reliant mentality. Since the church had no felt needs, they had fooled themselves into believing that they had no spiritual needs either. Do you see the connection there? But what the text is communicating to this church and to us is that a self-sufficient spirituality makes Jesus sick. It triggers his gag reflex. It's really hard to be God-dependent when we are so self-sufficient. Would you agree? It makes Jesus sick because a Savior really isn't all that good of news if you don't believe you need saved. We got a Savior. Sweet, man. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I'll take the benefits, though. Like, the riches of Christ aren't all that great if the riches that we've built for ourselves are so much greater, this is the temptation of Laodicea. This, uh, okay, I'm kind of going on a limb here, but there's this country song that I heard the other day. You're, I referenced a bluegrass song last time. Not a huge country guy or anything like that, but 
I, I think this illustrates it really well. This church in Laodicea came across this song. Check out these lyrics. You've probably heard it. I'm not going to sing it. But the sentiment is, everybody's talking about heaven like they just can't wait to go. Like how it's going to be so good, so beautiful, laying next to you in this bed with you. I'm not, convinc- I'm not convinced about that because I don't know how heaven could be better than this. And that is Laodicea. Their, 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 their lives proved that they weren't convinced of Christ either. They're like, listen, like a life after Jesus sounds cool and whatnot. I'm not fully convinced. So I'll just be half in, half out, one foot in, one foot out. And we'll just kind of ride the fence. Like Christ seems rad. It's not that I don't want Christ. We just don't need him. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're good on our own, but we'll, we'll still attend church and stuff. And Jesus seems like good for my life. He seems to benefit me a little bit. So I'm going to be half in, half out. This letter keeps writing on the situation of the city. Um, it uses its, its issue with water as an example. Uh, Hierapolis, it's going to be a picture of Hierapolis here, was a city nearby that was known for its natural hot springs. That looks pretty cool, huh? That looks really rad. It was known for its beauty and its healing properties and the minerals. People would find relief from arthritis and skin disease and abdominal pain. They just soak in those tubs. And the Roman military, interestingly enough, had their own private section for rest and recovery in this city. Their most famous view, which is this, is almost a boast because it was facing Laodicea. Like, look at how valuable we are. Look at this natural thing that you can't have. Look how useful we are. And then to the other side of Laodicea was Colossae, which was located at the base of Mount Cadmus, which was covered in snow for most of the year. You didn't have refrigerators or anything like that. So you had ice cold, freezing water running off of this mountain into the city of Colossae. So on one side, you have this hot, medical, healing, rejuvenating, restoring waters of Hierapolis. And on the other side, you have these cold, refreshing, thirst-quenching waters of Colossae. And in between those two cities, you have a city that could boast in just about every single way except their water was the worst. Their water was terrible. Laodicea, its water was piped in from about seven miles away. And the water that they were pumping in, it wasn't hot, It wasn't cold. It was this tepid, lukewarm, mineral-heavy water that was nearly undrinkable. So now Jesus is writing a letter to the church at Laodicea, and he draws on this um, water problem that the city was notorious for to make a spiritual point. And here's what he said in uh, verses 15 and 16. He says, I know your deeds. I know how self-sufficient you're acting, that you're neither hot or cold. You aren't like the water of, of Hierapolis, restoring and therapeutic, and you're not cold and refreshing like Colossae. Like, I wish you were either one or the other. I wish you were good for something. <laughs> so because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Church of Laodicea, you are just as good as the water in your city. Good for nothing, useless. You aren't refreshing. You aren't making an impact for the kingdom of God. And for that very reason, I'm triggered. My gag reflexes are triggered. I'm disgusted at the way that you're living out your faith. (sighs) Now, before we go any further, let me state something real explicitly. This is not making a case for works-driven faith. Like, I'm not saying that you need to go and do more to earn your salvation. But at the same time, we see all throughout the scriptures that our faith is expressed through our lifestyle. Like we are called as the book of James, we've been studying in youth ministries, the book of James invites to not just be hearers of the word, but be what? Doers of the word. We don't have a works-driven faith, but thanks to Dave, he gave me this, but we have faith-driven works. 
We have faith-driven works. Our faith isn't built on works. It's built on Christ, but our faith drives our works. It drives our lifestyle. If I told you I loved my wife, Allison, and you never ever saw me around her talking to her or anything, would you believe me? No, you'd be like, dude, put your money where your mouth is. Like we are saved by what Jesus Christ has done for us through his death and resurrection, but that drives us into a new life now and forever. Resurrection life doesn't start when you die. It starts now. Did you hear that? That's exciting. Resurrection life doesn't start, oh man, one day when I die, I'll have peace and I'll have true life. No, we get to start living that right now. And James makes it clear, if you're going to be a part of my church in this world, then use your life for the purposes of advancing the kingdom of God. Use your life, your every moment, your assets, your abilities, talents, experiences, good and bad. Use the opportunity God gives you to be a part of what he's doing in this world. And he uses really strong language to communicate this. If you are a Christ follower and your life looks nothing like Christ, if you're not spending your life for the purposes of moving his mission forward, then you are not fulfilling the, God, the, the, the calling that God has placed on your life. And that nauseates Jesus. Let me put it plainly from 1 John. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This is why we emphasize becoming like Jesus here at Cedar Mill so much. Like, we want our lives to represent the life of Christ. Not on Sunday mornings, but like every single aspect of our life, right? submitted to his rule and reign, like this humble submission. Jesus, you tell me where to go, right? That, that's what we're after here at Cedar Mill. And there, there's this risk, though, that I still want to point out. The risk that we run is linking participation with transformation. The risk is convincing ourselves that because we do a lot of cool Jesus-y stuff, then we must be following Jesus really well. There's a word for that in the Bible. The truth is, we can do all the churchy things and still cease to become more loving like Christ. The Pharisees were this way. They, they did a lot of stuff. Were they loving like Christ? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels and do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains and do not have love, I have nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Participation does not equal transformation. Write that down. Don't be fooled into believing that the more stuff you do means you're really transformed into Christ-likeness. The litmus test to know, am I becoming more like Christ? A question you can ask is this, as I follow Jesus, am I becoming more loving? As I do this stuff that Jesus calls me to do, am I becoming more like Jesus or am I becoming something different? We pursue participation with the goal of transformation into a more loving person, okay? That's why we do these things. We don't do these because it's like, man, you've really earned yourself. No, we do these things. God, make my heart like yours. Make me more loving like you, Jesus, a more Christ-like person. That is the goal. Does my life look more and more like Christ as I pursue him? 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Hmm. (laughs) 
People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And get this part right here, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That is Laodicea. This is wild. It, it, it makes God sick to watch people claim to be followers of Jesus, recipients of his grace, while they sit around and live lukewarm, useless, disengaged lives. Why? Why, why is that true? I think this is the point here, is that a lukewarm faith makes no sense when we follow a resurrected Lord. A lukewarm faith is bonkers. It makes zero sense when we pursue a resurrected Lord. So church, let's wake up. There's no power in playing church games. The power is living lives that only make sense if Jesus raised from the dead. That's the kind of life that I want to live, where people go, that makes no sense. And you go, yeah, it doesn't for me either, but Jesus is calling me to do it. Like, do our lives look distinctively different because of the hope that we have in Christ? It's not just about where do we go when we die. It's about what we're doing as we are alive now and for eternity. Revelation 3, 17 and 18. Uh, Let me refer back to this. He says, you say, I am rich. Laodicea says this about themselves. "I've, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Don't be deceived into thinking that you aren't in desperate need of what only Christ can provide. Don't be deceived into thinking that you are good on your own accord. Like, isn't it really, really hard to pray, God, give us today our daily bread when we don't need bread? It's hard to be desperate for the Lord when we're so self-sufficient. And and let me just remind you, self-sufficiency is a mirage. It's a mirage. It's... We cannot rely on ourselves. It's so disturbing for Jesus to see people wearing his label and rejecting his lordship. You catch that. Isn't isn't that the temptation for us though? Like this is, I'm just gonna be vulnerable. This is the temptation for me to wear Jesus's label and to reject his worship or his lordship, to, to have the bumper sticker, but live like hell right? To attend church service and walk out unchanged, to profess Jesus as the king of your life and then go rule your own life. It's crazy for people to accept Jesus's grace and then pretend to be their own gods. But wow, that's so easy in our culture to pursue. Francis Chan, a pastor known for living a life of reckless abandon to the Lord, um, Listen to this sermon earlier, and I wanted to share this quote with you that he said about lukewarmness. He said, lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they don't have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens because they have their savings account. They don't need God to help them because they have the retirement plan in place. They don't genuinely seek out what life God would have them live. They have life figured and mapped out. They don't depend on God on a daily basis. Their refrigerators are full, and for the most part, they are in good health. The truth is, their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. And if you're anything like me, you might be thinking, whoa, 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 Nick, doesn't that sound a little radical and a little ridiculous? Doesn't that sound a little bit like a professional Christian or like a fanatic or like what some people would call a Jesus freak? 
And as soon as that crossed my mind as I was listening to this sermon, he dropped this line and it kind of sucker punched me. I want to drop it for you. He says, lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all of his followers. Like, okay. Oh boy. Like, have we fooled ourselves into believing that pursuing Christ can be done without relinquishing everything? Like, have we fooled ourselves into believing that we can gain the whole world and gain our soul for eternity? (laughs) Have we fooled ourselves into thinking that Jesus said, come follow me, and he didn't actually mean it that way? How easy is it for us to want the full benefits of Christ and be part-time followers? It's so easy to desire the riches of Christ and spend our lives pursuing the riches of this world. Uh, Don't forget, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Take up your cross. Jesus isn't a side dish to your meal. He is the meal. The fear that this letter is tapping into is that if I wasn't lukewarm in my faith, I would have to give up a lot of stuff in my life right? I think that's the fear that I'm, that, that, that's kind of being tapped into here. If I was not going to be lukewarm, some stuff would have to change. I'd have to give some stuff up. For Laodicea, they had misdiagnosed themselves. They're like, we don't need anything. We don't need to give anything up because like, we're good. Like we, We're rich. We don't need a thing. Eh, wrong. This text flies right in the face of what they had banked their life on. Jesus says, what you think is sustaining you isn't actually what you need. Ditch this stuff and come get it from me. Come purchase it from me. And I pray this brings comfort to you today. I think he's saying this, Jesus is worth everything you are afraid of losing. Jesus is worth everything that you are afraid of losing. Whatever you are afraid of losing in your pursuit of Christ, it's worth it. Go for it. Go all in. I love, I think John Stott, he, he, he taps into this with this specific scripture. He says this, here is welcome news for blind beggars. They are poor, but Christ has gold. They are naked, but Christ has clothes. They are blind, but Christ has eye salve. Let them no longer trust in their bank accounts, their clothing factories, and their Phrygian eye ointment. Let them come to him. He alone can enrich their poverty, clothe their nakedness, and heal their blindness. He can open their eyes to perceive a spiritual world of which they have never dreamed. He can cover their sin and their shame and make them fit to partake of the inheritance of saints in the kingdom of light. In a word, he can save them. Only he can save them. Not all those things that they go, we're good. No, only he can save them. Friends, only he has the power to save. He is worthy of everything you are afraid of losing because in him you gain everything. In him you gain everything. So we can gladly relinquish everything. Christ has what it is you've been searching for. I believe there's some people in this room that's like, man, I'm just here searching. Like, it's just Christ has what you've been searching for. I pray that you experience Christ in a powerful way today. He has given his life for you, traded your sinfulness for his righteousness. Praise be to God that you can have life that starts today and lasts for eternity. I love the way that Paul puts this uh, to the church in Colossae. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. So since, since you've trusted Jesus for salvation and you've died to your old way of life and you're pursuing this new life, set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for he died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And I love this line. It says, when Christ, who is your life? 
like he is your very life now, Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Like when we die to our old way and raise to this new life, the pursuit of our lives becomes singular. We live for an audience of one. We pursue an audience of one. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's his will, not our will. It's his plans and purposes, not our plans and purposes. It's his life, Christ in me, the hope of glory. A lukewarm Christian wants a little bit of the word to sleep at night and a little bit of the world to live it up during the day. (laughs) But not for Cedar Mill Bible Church. Not for us. Christ is now our very lives. It's what we live for and it's what we die for. We've banked it all on him. That's what we're pursuing in this life. In Jesus' ministry, he'd often gather massive crowds. And by the end of his teaching, there would be a few people left. I'm surprised there's still people here. Maybe I'm not preaching good enough, but because according to Jesus' metrics, there shouldn't be anybody in here. But John 6, 66 and 69, listen to this. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? We have, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What a vision of discipleship right there. What a vision to live in such a way that without Jesus, we would have nowhere left to turn. Like he is our plan A and there is no plan B. We've banked it all on him. I want that kind of life. This is the life of a disciple. May we arrange our lives similarly. When Jesus says, do you want to go too? We go, I have nowhere else to go. I literally have nowhere else to go. Uh, C.T. Studd, um, a stud of a man, uh, He's an incredible British missionary to China. Listen to how he puts this. This just fired me up. Too long we've been waiting for one another to begin. The time of waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. War is declared. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. The God of heaven, he will fight for us as we for him. We will not build on sand, but on the bedrocks of the sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men and women as we fear before the world, I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, I like that word, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for him. We will live and we will die for him and we will do it with his joy, unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only our God than trusting in man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won and the end of the glorious campaign in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a strong holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. Isn't that phenomenal? I'm like, let's go. The time is struck. Let's do this. The apostle Paul understood this. In his letter to the Philippians, he gets done saying all this, these accomplishments. He's like, basically, I could be really successful. I'm really awesome. Um, I'm a boss. I have it all, right? But then he, the letter takes a turn, and it says this. What is more than all of that is that it's trash to me. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost everything. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now that I have, not that I have already obtained all this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of, for, for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward or straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Jesus, help us to risk it all similarly. Help us to live lives deliberately for the glory of God. It is better to lose our lives for Christ's sake than to waste them on lesser things in this world. So what do we do? Maybe you're thinking, okay, dude, you've convinced me. There's some areas that might be a little lukewarm, all right? Like, what is the cure? What is the invitation here? How do I respond to this message in a God-honoring way? What was the cure for the, La- the church in Laodicea? I think it's this. I think it's singular. It's very clear. The only cure for lukewarmness is the readmission of the excluded Christ. The only cure for lukewarmness is, is the readmission of the excluded Christ. The only cure is putting Christ in his proper place in your life. In John's vision, here's what Jesus says. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Somebody's not in the house if he's knocking. You know what I'm saying? If anyone, is anybody hearing this? If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give them the right, or the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The good news today is that Christ stands at the door and knocks. He may have been excluded. He may be a little disgusted and be about to spit you out of his mouth, but he has not abandoned you. You you can provide him access to your life today, like full access. And my encouragement would be welcome him into your life. Welcome him into those areas that you may have grown lukewarm. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. What type of access does Jesus have to your life? What areas of life are you struggling to let him in? By now, you're probably thinking, okay, that's some good news. I'd like a little bit more good news. Well, one, one thing that I love about this passage is that God issues this really hard, harsh rebuke to the church, but then he says this, Revelation 3, 19. I love this line. But those I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. You see, God says, I'm telling you this because I love you. If you're feeling conviction today, It is a grace from God. Like if you are feeling a sense of correction or rebuke, like like I have been as I've been studying this passage for quite a while, may we not shy away and write it off as, I don't want to feel guilt or shame. That's not, it's not guilt or shame. May we be seeing the loving hand of God on our lives. Jesus loves loves us enough to be honest with us, to strengthen us for tough times ahead. If you've walked in casual today, my prayer has been that we be a church that walks out zealous. If you've walked in lukewarm today, my prayer is that you would walk out with this calling and this vision on your life for what it looks like to pursue him wholeheartedly. I pray that Romans 12, 11 would become true of our church as we follow him. Never be lacking in zeal, but be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. With that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, We're grateful for your word. 
We're grateful for the ways that you've loved us and cared for us um, through some of the most trying of times. You've shown your caring hand um, in our lives. And, and God, I'm thankful for, for these harsh harsh words that are shared because we see that you correct and you, you rebuke and you convict us because you have this deep sense of love and care and admiration for us, your children. So God, I pray that our hearts would be soft before you as we process ways in which we may have grown lukewarm. And we say, we just reject that because we know that when we have a, a father and a, a son, Jesus Christ, who has come towards us with such zealous and um, exciting enthusiasm to rescue people who are far from him. Um, you did not shy away in that moment. So God, as we fix our eyes on the ways that you've pursued us, may we go, maybe we just start arranging our lives in such a way that, that it only makes sense that if we're pursuing you, like may our lives be a testimony and a testament to your power in this world. God, we make ourselves um, available to you. We fix our eyes on you. We say, lead us, guide us. We want to be followers of you. We want to pursue you wholeheartedly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.